0: Take the halls with boughs of holly. Ba la 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 la, la la la. Hey, Jess. Hey, Megan. Oh, my goodness. What are we doing? I'm so excited. I'm so excited too. I can't wait. Bonus episode Prairie
1: Pod.
0: <laughs> now you need a little prairie pod in the dead of winter. Things are getting chilly. It's a nice time, you know. Ah, nah, nah, nah. The days are getting shorter. My mosquito bites have faded, and I'm getting that kind of hankering I get this time of year for glutenful snacks.
2: <laughs> some cheese.
0: Some cheese. Oh gosh, I love me some cheese. They said. And dreaming in... about the prairie. Oh, you know, when the days get shorter like this, I do tend to think back to a warmer time, and that warmer time that I think back to is field season. Jess what do you think about field season?
2: Well people that don't have field seasons may not realize how big of a deal it is to spend so much time out on the prairie and at the end of the field season you always come away with loads of stories.
0: Lots of stories and I sometimes think that it's my best and worst moments at work (laughs) like and sometimes those happen on the same exact day true true but as much as we complain about it we also enjoy it tremendously so in honor of that glorious season we're releasing a bonus episode to highlight the work we do for prairie conservation so those stories that jess was mentioning sit back and enjoy because we're taking you back to minnesota's golden season So early in my career, I felt like when I would talk to people about this idea of recreating the land and doing restoration, that sometimes people would get hung up on this idea that they had to do it at this certain fixed point in time, like they were going to create this prairie and they were going to mimic this 1800s prairies. I've really never found much sense in that. Because no matter what we do, we aren't going back to 1820. And thank goodness because that indoor toilet is amazing. But there are lessons to be learned from a prairie landscape that was whole that can be applied today. I'm always striving to think about all the past experiences a piece of land has had in the context of what makes sense for it now. It's about balance and diversity. I no more want to take an eraser and wipe farms off the Minnesota landscape than I do my house, which was built in 1910. There's a legacy there, right? There's families and memory and home but I do desperately want to find a way to connect people to the prairie so that it can persist. Because it sustains us, just as it has sustained native peoples and settlers through time. It has that legacy that needs to be borne forward. That legacy creeps up on me when I'm standing on a rare prairie site where all I see are hills of undulating grasses and wildflowers blowing in the wind. It's really not that often that the stamp of settlement is obscured. Often the view is broken by a windmill, a house, or a road, and that's okay because that's part of the landscape we live in, but our job is to make sure there's balance. It's a humbling feeling to stand on a prairie and wonder if what I'm seeing is what Laura Ingalls Wilder saw. To take you to what it feels like when you see that unbroken landscape, here's Mike Worland talking about his first encounter with what makes Prairie Vistas so special.
3: Okay, so my my first story is not it's not humorous, uh, but it's it's it, it had an emotional impact on me. It was an important event for me, in in my career here in Minnesota, and um, I just started. I don't know how long I'd been on. We're talking a few weeks, and we had a local technical team meeting. So local technical teams implement the Minnesota Area Conservation Plan, and this one was in um, in Sandburg, Minnesota. It was. The Glacial Lakes team, and so we had we had the, we had the meeting, and we had I had some time left over in the day, so I thought I would go out and explore, a little bit, um, and so you know Sandberg is just west of Sibley State Park, and uh, that's on Highway Nine. So if you take Highway Nine west, and just just west of of, I said Sandberg. Is it Sandberg or Sunburg? It's a real metropolis, you know. It's... I
0: know you're telling this story.
3: <laughs> um, so just west of
0: Danborn, <laughs> <Sunberg's> probably closer.
3: <laughs> just west of that town, um, uh, you go north on Highway 104, and that's going towards um, the, the Nature Conservancy Prairie Ordway. That's going towards Ordway up there. And so, I this is I had not been exposed to Big Minnesota Prairie yet. Um, I had seen small prairies kind of in the eastern part of the state. But uh, what, what happens when you drive north on 104, just a mile or two north of, of Highway 9, you crest, you come over the lip of a hill, and before you is this is this landscape full of grass. And it includes that ordway, it includes some wildlife management areas, I think it includes about the Prairie Bank easement properties. And it's it's just it's all grass, and I pulled over, and I didn't like start crying or anything, but I I was probably just like a step away from that. It was such a beautiful landscape, and 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 you know I felt like I should be seeing some bison out there, and and maybe a couple of like covered wagons. Um,
0: Did you feel like you needed to be eating a grass-fed beef burger so that you were giving back to grassland birds and enjoying this moment on the prairie?
3: At that that point, no. I hadn't made that connection yet. But um, (laughs) what I did want to do was go run through the prairie. And I didn't do that because I'm getting older and bigger and I might have sprained an ankle. (laughs) But I walked briskly through the prairie. And um, I think I went to Ordway. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I just that was so that was my first that was that was my first experience with big Minnesota prairie. You know, this was like five years ago, four years ago, um, and that and it was just like bam, all at once. I, um, I, you know, I drove over that the lip of that hill and saw that prairie before me, and, and it was pretty stunning. So I recommend people try that uh, that that route that I'm talking about, west on Highway Nine. out of Sibley State Park, north on 104, and yeah, I can't remember what time of year it was. It was probably actually around now, and um, yeah, it was beautiful.
2: Mike's story of the beautiful vistas reminded me of my first time arriving at this beautiful landscape surrounding Ordway Prairie. The rolling and bending hills and valleys are really beautiful. There's nothing that compares to being able to take in an entire prairie landscape as far as you can see. Not only are these landscapes beautiful from a distance, but also super fun to explore up close. Sometimes what we find catches us off guard, even when we are acutely aware of the possibilities Here's Mike Whirling again to tell us about an encounter with wildlife that was a little
3: too close for comfort. It happened just a few weeks ago, actually. No, well, several weeks ago. And one of the one of the hosts of the Prairie Pod was with me, and that <laughs> host was Jess, Jessica Peterson. So we were out we were out surveying for leonard skippers, and this is in southeast Minnesota. And southeast Minnesota is something I don't think you guys have covered a whole lot. I'm guessing, on the Prairie Pod. It's not really often recognized as prairie country, but it is. Uh, it's just prairies on a much smaller scale. All these little bluff tops are prime opportunities for managing for prairie because they're way too steep to, to farm uh, with anything but goat grazing. Goat grazing works well, but but certainly no corn or beans or anything. Anyway, um we were on one of these bluff prairies looking for Leonard Skippers. Jessica was there and we knew that there were timber rattlesnakes on this bluff somewhere. Oh boy. And yeah. <laughs> and and so I take pride in myself as a wildlife biologist. I love snakes. I love everything that's creepy and crawly that many people get a little freaked out about. So I've always taken pride in handling snakes and not being afraid of them. Um, but I've only been around a few timber rattlesnakes, um, and usually I've just seen them, you know, from a distance, like hiding underneath a rock, you know. Um, so here we're kind of we know there are timber rattlesnakes here. We're lo- I'm walking around looking for them for quite carefully while I'm searching for. These Leonard skippers, and and uh, you know Jess loves timber rattlesnakes <laughs> as well. Um, I think she does, really. But but I think if she I probably... had the
2: opportunity to see them from a distance like you had, okay. I would appreciate them.
3: But I'm I'm blaming her partially for this. I think she heightened my anxiety a little bit uh, because of the stress that she was giving off. But. Um, that's my lame. That's my. This is my lame excuse ahead of time. But anyway, so I step on this rock. I looked at it, looked over it carefully for a timber rattlesnake, and saw nothing. And I stepped on it, and I heard a rattle, basically right at, right at my feet. And you know, like I said, I'm getting older. I'm getting heavier. I'm a, you know, my athleticism has declined steeply since my youth. But Michael Jordan had nothing on me when that snake rattled its tail. I I levitated a little bit, and I did a Scooby-Doo thing when you when your feet are rotating and you're sitting in one place, kicking, and you're spinning. You know, I did that, um, and yeah, so. <laughs> The bottom line is, I, I was kind of ashamed of my reaction to that timber rattlesnake. That that rattle that that snake has evolved to scare away potential predators works really well, and yeah. So I, after I got a little ways away from it, you know, several feet, then I then I admired it and and uh, we laughed and Jess made fun of me and um, I did. Yeah.
2: I kept but, trying but, to figure out why Mike was falling uphill. <laughs>
0: Oh, In my great. brain,
2: it didn't compute. Like, well, he's falling. That's normal on a bluff. Wait a but minute, he's going point. up. <laughs> and then I very slowly put it all together, like, Rattlesnake noise. <laughs> Falling. Oh, oh. Well, oh, there was a rattlesnake down there. Okay. Fears confirmed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mike, have, did you. So, when I worked in the South, um, and I encountered a hognose snake, which they can mimic cobras and stand up and they do some yeah. pretty freaky stuff that, uh, even though they're non venomous, but, uh, they refer to something called the snake shakes, that any time you have an encounter with no. a snake, where you just cannot physically stop shaking, and I just have to know, did you get the snake shakes?
3: I did not get the snake shakes. No, I guess I, guess I, I have at least that much to say, yeah. <laughs> I should reiterate, while we're talking about timber rattlesnakes, that they are very docile animals. and This is a prime example of, of what they do. They, they rattled. It, well, it wanted nothing to do with me. It rattled to let me know it was there, and then it went and hit under hit under a rock. Um, but they're super docile, and and their bites are very rare um, in Minnesota. Actually, timber rattlesnakes, their bites are pretty rare everywhere. So I, I just want to reiterate that the the danger level it, it's certainly there, but it's low, and and um,
0: awareness is just key. Like be aware of where awareness
3: you're... is key. Okay. It's okay it's okay if you're afraid of rattlesnakes there's nothing wrong with that apparently I am deep down <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hashtag healthy respect for wildlife
3: <laughs> healthy respect there you go yep.
2: <laughs> while this story highlights the spook we got there were many other wonderful things I remember from that day in the field with Mike including beautiful albeit tall and very slanty bluffs finding Leonard Skinners for the first my first time sharing time in the field with colleagues and just being surrounded by beautiful blooming blazing star. The fright was certainly a reminder that we all need to practice safety in the field because you never know when something unexpected might happen. Encounters with wildlife can also be incredibly positive. Listen as Lisa and Bear, non-game biologist, talks to us about her encounter with a different snake species on the prairie.
4: I mean, these field stories, they're the reasons why we're one of the big reasons why we're so passionate about what we do. But the one I want to tell you today you know, I have been and others have been involved with tracking bull snakes, and I had handled them before. I tracked a lot of them, and they all have, dare I say, their own personalities. But I'd never actually just captured one for the very first time all by myself, one that had never been tracked before. So this was a couple of years ago. It was the very end of the field season. You know, we're tracking to the last, you know, where they're heading to to the their burrows to overwinter. And I had been tracking all day. It was towards the end of the day. And all of a sudden, I keep going back to this one burrow, because that we know that's a place where, you know, the snakes like to go for overwintering. And all of a sudden I stop, and there's one, and it's basking, and I'm between it and the burrow, and I'm checking, and I'm going through all the frequencies. This is not one that's been radioed before. And okay, here's my chance. The problem is, I got all this stuff. I got this, I got the radio, the antenna that I'm tracking with. I've got, you know, my backpack and a waist pack and all this stuff. This is not something you you have, want to have on when you're going to be diving for a snake. So I'm like, okay. I don't want this. i making a mad dash for the for the hole. So it's like, okay, you just stay right there, and I'm going to watch you while I set this stuff down here. And it's watching me, and I'm watching it. And it was like, okay, who's going to make the first move? So finally, I make a mad dash, and I grab grab it around the middle, like like Jeff Leclaire, MBS, bio uh, herpetologist, said to do. And I grab it, and I got it. Now, of course, it did tag me because, well, it scared. This big hand came out of the sky and grabbed it. But I really didn't even feel it. It was like two microscopic pinpricks. I mean, I've had paper cuts worse than this. Cacti are worse than this. (laughs) So I grab it, and then I, I get control of the head. I was like, okay. And I had an opportunity then to look at it. You know, my heart's pumping. How beautiful this thing is. I mean, its head is like this intricately you know beaded design it was just amazing but it, so okay i said okay look at the data sheet i've, I've got it i've got to do measurements i am not a big person this is a very big snake and you have to run the measuring tape down its body while you know trying to get accurate measurements and i get about three quarters of the way and it wrap its tail around my arm and i'm like oh, you know we have to do this again so we do it again, and we do it again, and do it again. You know, if I had been, it, I, I'd have bitten me, but it didn't. And in fact, you know, during the process of measuring and, and weighing and and taking samples, I lost track of its head a whole lot of times. And it really could have bitten me, but it really it was either just trying to get away, or it was curious, kind of winding around. And, you know, it's it's like a lot of species. You know, every time I study something new, I fall in love with that that critter and I I loved the bull snakes before but this one was really special because it was my first one I did all by myself and I, I could do it and and I got that just a really up close and personal and when it was done I released it where I had found it basking in the sunlight and I got video of it as it just slowly made its way. And it was just the perfect cap to the end of of that field season and the end of October.
0: Hearing Lisa talk about the beauty of that snake and her joy at having a safe and successful handling and release reminds me of something I had a coworker tell me once. He said, Conservation isn't just a career. It's a lifestyle. The more I learn each year, the more I understand what he meant. This job is not just a job. It speaks to our identity, including our ethics, our relationship to the land, things we like to do for fun, our choices, and our values. We're in these jobs because we care. We care about conservation, about wildlife, and about the future of the prairie landscape. Sometimes that caring can take us to the next level, where we get to have an encounter that deeply touches us. Listen as plant ecologist Fred Harris talks about his experience with an American kestrel that has stuck with him through the years. Although our hope is that the scars haven't.
5: Um, my story is about when I, the time I was doing surveys of prairies early in my career in, in 1993 up in Polk County, Minnesota. Um, which is a really spectacular place to do surveys of prairies. A lot of our biggest and best prairies are out there. And in, I don't know if you remember, but there was a catastrophic volcano Mm -hmm. that erupted in 1991 in the Philippines. I think it's considered to have been the largest volcanic eruption of the century and it affected the weather for several years. And up there in northern Minnesota we had these series of cool, rainy, cloudy summers in 1992 and in 1993. And and we're wearing our rubber boots every day and it's just clouds and clouds and mosquitoes and rain and stuff. So, I had this amazing encounter one early evening in '93. It was after the rain had stopped and the kind of the clouds were clearing. There was this bright kind of yellow light coming at an angle, kind of early to late evening, and I finally got to go and walk in this place after after the rains had stopped, and it was at. Maple Meadows WMA is a large prairie in uh, western Polk County. So I'm walking into this place along the, this narrow trail through these, these prairies, taking field notes about what kind of prairies there and what condition it's in. And I come across this kestrel in the middle of the path, lying on its back. feet straight up in the air, its wings splayed out, and its eyes closed, and it was absolutely soaked wet. And I looked at it, and I picked it up, and it opened its eyes. I'm like, it's alive, and it absolutely wasn't moving. It just couldn't move at all. It was just lying on its back in my hand, but it opened its eyes, and I'm like, "Holy cow!" <laughs> um, and it was obviously completely soaked and cold. So I picked up this bird, and it just lay in my hand, and I I tried to warm it up, and it. it just nothing was happening. So I turned around and went back to the car and thought, I'll try to help this bird out back in the car. So I hiked back. It must have been quite some distance, like a mile through this prairie, going back to the car. The birds, I folded up its wings and I have it in my hand and it's just watching me, absolutely not moving not moving a thing, except its eyes were open. So I go into the car, and I start up the car and I thought, okay maybe some hypothermia or something, so um, I'm just gonna try to warm up this bird. So I got the car going, got the heaters blowing, hot air, and I start blowing blow drying the bird in in the the heater vent in the car. And so I've got the bird upside down. I'm doing its head feathers. And then I pull out one wing and do one wing one way. And the bird's absolutely motionless in my hand, but watching me. And then pull out another wing and blow dry that one. And as I'm getting it a little warm, it's kind of turning its head and keeping its eyes on me but otherwise absolutely not moving. And so then I flipped it over and lifted his tail and blow dried its butt feathers and spread out the tail and the back upside down this way and that way and got it all blow dried off. And it's moving its head more and his eyes are just fixed on me, but absolutely not moving. And so then I wanted to see whether whether it would respond to me if if I, you know, touched it, things like that. So I, I had it held it up and put my finger right on his beak, tapped on his beak, looking at me, and it took a second, and then it just Chopped on my feet. <laughs> just.
2: Of course it
5: did. Of course it did. It just chopped on my finger. That's what I mean. It's chopped on my finger and it was very painful. It's like, <laughs> ow! <laughs> so it seemed like it, it had revived. And so I opened the car door got outside, opened my hand, the bird sitting in my hand, looking left and right, sitting there for a while, and then boom, just took off from my hand, just zoomed up into the air through the trees that were along the road. And that was and it was gone. And it was it was really an amazing experience. I never rescued a an animal like that before it looked to me like it must have had a hypothermia and I can't imagine it would have survived wow. otherwise so.
0: i love that fred tested the reflexes of the kestrel before he released it when he first told me this story i was imagining him with a tiny hammer tapping it on the knee like at a doctor's checkup <laughs> thankfully he didn't do that i feel really lucky that i get to work with people like fred who in addition to their deep knowledge of the prairie ecosystem, they also care just as deeply about all of the parts and pieces that make that ecosystem so incredible to study and live in. One of those pieces is grassland birds. Grassland birds are some of the Minnesota Prairie's most iconic symbols. They announce their presence and help fill the prairie with life. In fact, bird watching is a big industry that pulls folks from all over the country Once the rare bird alert signal goes out, it's kind of like the bat symbol, except instead of getting people in capes, you get them with lists, binoculars, scopes, cotton wrap birding guides with a little strap, making them easy to carry when you're on the hunt for that next lifer on your list. Shout out to you, Mom. While you may or may not be a birder, you probably haven't ever thought that you would get to go birding with David Sibley. Phil Dahl, private lands biologist for Becker Soil and Water Conservation District, got just that opportunity. Listen while he takes Dave on a tour of the Glacial Lakes core prairie area.
6: In Detroit Lakes, there's a festival of birds, and that was a couple years ago. I think it was their 20th season, 20th year of doing it. And uh, David Sibley was in town as the keynote speaker.
0: Like the David Sibley.
6: Yes, the David Sibley, the, the rock star of birding and um, on Sunday after his speech, he needed a ride back to Fargo to go to the airport. So me being the expert uh, landscape viewer that I, I, I'm known for, <laughs> uh, all the uh, festival speakers and, and organizers were busy, so they asked me to drive David back to the airport. Um, but David wanted to be picked up early and go birdwatching. So I picked him up at the the hotel here in DL uh, like six o'clock in the morning, bright and early. And we took off on a little adventure through Becker, Monoman, Norman, Clay Counties. And he had a list of birds he kind of wanted to see, uh, but it was really kind of a drizzly day. Uh, Not great for bird watching. So I took him through some spots. I know we'd find some birds. And it was pretty amazing to uh, just be with him when he was bird watching, because um, everyone watches birds differently, but we stopped at a marsh that was being uh, restored, it was being restored, so there was a lot of activity, and there was birds everywhere, ducks and songbirds, and, um, you know, I had put my binoculars out, and I had looked around for a few minutes, and, you know, I was kind of (laughs) done, but he's out there listening and watching, and then he turns to me and he starts telling me all the species that are singing that he can hear and pointing in different directions and I I had no clue I didn't I couldn't hear uh, one species from the next so that was pretty incredible Did and you then we feel stopped like
0: maybe he was just snowballing you And uh,
6: you know that's that's that could have been because at another spot another wetland restoration there was a big flock of shorebirds and it was uh, I thought they were all you know some sort of sandpiper or something but he you know he's looking at him with his binoculars and he turns to me and he goes yeah there's one uh rudy turnstone in there (laughs) just what (laughs) but uh yeah it was incredible and then he really wanted to see a red-tailed hawk and uh we and i thought what (laughs) you want to see a red-tailed hawk that's so so common right what's so unique about that but um he was trying to compare the different color morphs or phases between different populations and um i thought for sure we'd bounce into a red tail hawk at random so i didn't even think about it but we went the whole, you know three or four hours and we didn't see a single one i felt like a pretty poor tour guide but um the one really thing that's, that stood out to me is we were between spots i drove him up to monoman county to look at some prairie chickens because I knew where they were booming. And he thought that was cool. And then we had to make a kind of a trip through um, some poor birding areas to get to some better habitat in Norman County. And as we're driving on a back road, kind of a back quiet tar road, um, you know, I'm going 60 miles an hour in my car and uh, (laughs) these birds were on the side of the road. I don't know exactly what they were, it was some sort of sparrow. And the flock, you know, as you approach, they often just flutter away, and no big deal. But they took a bad angle, and they flew up, and one of them just, boom, bounced real hard off the windshield. Oh, no. And, uh, you know, how often, I, I can probably count on my one hand how many times I've killed a bird, uh, you know, a small sparrow like that in my life. But here I am driving David Sibley around, and I kill I kill a bird right in, I mean, it was right in front of our eyeballs. And I turned to him and I, and I said, it was it was so awkward because obviously the bird died. But I, what do you say? <laughs> and I said something like, "Oh, I, I think we got that one" or something. And he just nodded. Like I I, I really wonder what he was thinking at that moment when you know, like who's this guy from Minnesota that's driving me around killing birds? Yeah, it was very interesting the what what he the species that he wanted to stop and look at. And, You know, we saw some uh, trumpeter swans, and he he stopped and we listened to the, watched and listened to them for like half an hour. He got all, all these gadgets out of his bag and started recording them. Uh, they were making a lot of vocalizations and that was interesting just to observe him while he was observing the birds. And then he also wanted me to stop for a sandhill crane. Um, he was making note of the, again, the coloration of the crane, something to do with how they how the colors change during migration and, and the different theories behind that but uh that was interesting uh metal larks prairie chickens we saw a big flock of prairie chickens right on gravel road and they got up and flew and he really thought that was cool just watching them fly and their you know their wind beats and then they would glide he, and he really really enjoyed that but uh it was it was quite the experience. It was it was like I said, it was misty, rainy, and what, at one point we were driving down a gravel road that was kind of um, wet, really wet, you know. So we're driving, and it's kind of I start fishtailing a little bit, and I don't think he'd spend a lot of time in vehicles that are fishtailing on a gravel roads. So he was really grabbing on, white knuckle, and I think he was a little scared for his life. <laughs> but, He's uh, probably
0: worried you're gonna plow through some rare bird after that first. <laughs>
6: Yeah. yeah. I felt I felt out of out of place, I guess, with the world's most expert bird watcher. But um, his, I did ask him a few questions. His favorite, uh, his favorite. He didn't have a favorite bird, but his favorite group of birds were warblers. And um, I did, I asked him if he had seen every bird in the world, and of course he said yes. Like, kind of like a duh. <laughs> 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 I didn't. I didn't but uh, it was pretty cool. I dropped him off in Fargo, and away he went, and I guess we haven't, we haven't been in touch since, but maybe he'll pick up the phone and call me one of these days if he wants to go bird watching again.
2: I just love picturing the awkward silence in the car and being awestruck by Sibley's ability to capture the differences in birds that go unnoticed to many of us. Phil's story reminds me of a recent theme that I've been thinking a lot about, and that is our relative level of awareness. David Sibley was able to notice that the one duck was different from all the rest, or that the coloration differences were based on geography or timing. That's because he has such vast experiences with noticing birds. People often ask me why they just started noticing some insect. My answer is always the same. It's because you were open to looking for that that has been there all along. There are amazing things in the prairie, big and small, and if we all spend a bit more time noticing, we'll see a whole awful lot. Insects are a perfect example of this. They're everywhere, all the time. You just have to look. The next story is by Lisa Galvin-Enver is about noticing bumblebees in the prairie.
4: I had the opportunity this last uh, uh, summer to go out. Doing pollinator surveys with my good buddy Jess Peterson and you know I, I'm a newbie when it comes to learning uh, my prey butterflies and bees and uh, it was just so fun that sense of discovery uh, I, I'm actually the fact that I'm can actually it's starting to stick. I'm starting to be able to identify some of these. And I know that Jess would tell me if I wasn't. (laughs) So I'm very, you know, it it, it makes me feel good about myself, but also that wonder that the the diversity is out there and making the connections between these little creatures that are so important to conservation of of the prairie. Um, And my my one story I want to add is towards the end of one day, just was pointing out the differences between the male and, and female bumblebees and how the males don't have stingers, they can't sting. And very, you know, gently showed me how I could pick up the, the male bumblebee and how it wouldn't sting. But it's just like a little bitty vibration, you know, in my fingertips. And I don't know, it's just, it's that sense of wonder. And I, I just wish that everyone could could get that sense of wonder. and and to know why it is that I care so much about the wildlife in our region.
2: I'm so thankful for Lisa and all her hard work learning how to identify butterflies and bumblebees. She's an inspiration to me to take on learning a new group of insects. All of this effort of keeping tabs on the critters that we love takes a village. It seems that some folks are intimidated to learn how to identify a new group of plants or animals. But if you have a willing interest to learn it can happen. Our next story comes to us from the Tallgrass Aspen Parklands of Northwestern Minnesota, where prairie chickens abound. Alex Wardwell, a Prairie Project Manager with Audubon tells us about her first experience in a prairie chicken blind on Glacial Ridge National Wildlife Refuge. A word of clarification before the story in the event that you are equally unfamiliar with the bird world as I am, IBA stands for Important
1: Bird Areas. It's hard to pick a favorite story, but I think probably one of my favorite experiences um, since I lived and worked in northwest Minnesota has probably been um, the first time I was in a prairie chicken blind. So um, the first prairie chicken blind I was ever in was out on Glacial Ridge National Wildlife Refuge, which is pretty close to my office, so that's a bonus, Um, and we do a lot of work out there because it's a globally important IBA, and, you know, it's a Prairie, or it's a um, prairie plan core area as well, as well as being you know the largest contiguous prairie wetland restoration in the country. So it's a good place to be to see all things all things wildlife. And and one morning I got up really early and drove to Glacial Ridge with a friend, and um, we got into the blind super early, and we just had an awesome day. I mean the prairie chickens um, got got there just after we did. And um, I'd say there were probably about 17, 17 or 18 prairie chickens um, displaying, and then additional females kind of skirting around, skirting around the edges. Um, and I think it was just, it was just kind of an amazing experience. If you've never um, experienced, you know, prairie chicken lek close up like that, I think there's just something sort of powerful about it, um, and like the sounds of the lek. Are sort of hard to describe unless you've heard it for yourself. I mean, it's just like really quite loud, actually. Like you, I didn't expect it to be quite <laughs> as noisy as it actually was. Um, and there were just like whoops and hums and cackles and laughter and just all sorts of noises that you don't necessarily associate with birds. Um, and it was just you know sort of one of those experiences that. Um, it's almost like something straight out of maybe like National Geographic, but it's, you know, right in your own backyard. Um, and so we were out there for a couple hours and um, just had a great time, and we're kind of starting to watch different birds and, and you know, see what, what they were doing and kind of how they were interacting with each other. And, um, you know, kind of the only bad part about being, in you know, a prairie chicken blind is that, You can't drink as much coffee as you might want to, um, since it's really early when you get to the Prairie Chicken Blind. Um, So you don't have to leave the blind, so you either don't drink much coffee or you drink very little coffee, so you don't have to leave the blind and scare the birds away. Um, But yeah, other than that, it's just kind of a first-rate wildlife experience and um, and then when we were coming kind of out of the blind, you know, it was probably, this was like late April. Um, and we were coming out, and it was it was a pretty warm April, um, coming out of the blind, and we were walking back to the parking area. And, um, you know, we were just chatting and looking around, and I just happened to kind of glance up and look to my left, and um, I saw just like these huge ears and at first i just you know i looked back and i didn't really think much of it um and then i kind of did a double take and i looked again and there was a moose cow that was like staring right at us but her head was kind of down low she was kind of half in some like a kind of like a shrub row so you could only see kind of her ears and just like the top of her head over the shrubs and um At first, I was just like, I just nudged my friend, and we just like kind of stared in awe at this moose that was probably only like maybe 75 feet from us, so we were like really close, and I wasn't sure what to do, like moose can be dangerous, so should I like back up, should we go back to the blind, like what should we do, and um, we just stayed there and kind of didn't move, and the moose raised her head, it was a cow, and um kind of raised her head, kind of took a step back, kind of just stayed there watching us. And we were watching her. And then she finally took off kind of slowly, kind of trotted up maybe the closest thing to a hill that the tall grass aspen parklands has. And it was kind of just like a little a little high ridge spot. Um, there aren't a lot of hills in the tall grass aspen parklands. Um, she kind of stopped and looked back at us, and we were watching her. and then and then she like tried it off kind of for good. and It was just really cool because the combination of the prairie chickens and like my first blind experience combined with um, my first Minnesota moose encounter was just kind of a pretty epic wildlife day. Um, And I mean, I'd see seen moose in Alaska before, um, we're kind of in certain areas. They're kind of like deer; they're just so common. But you know, I hadn't seen one in in Minnesota before, so that was kind of special. Um, and since then, of course, I've seen lots more moose. We have quite a few moose out here in Northwest Minnesota, so um, it was kind of the first of of many cool moose encounters.
0: Listening to Alex's story takes me back to the joy and excitement that prairies provide. They offer a frontier where you get to explore new things, view wildlife, and immerse yourself in discovery. That's what prairies are, a place to discover. It's probably why I find them so fascinating and spend so much of my time trying to recreate prairie habitat so that we can buffer the 2% we have left and have this landscape for years to come. Sometimes it really feels like a fool's errand that a person could think they would be capable of recreating something that took thousands of years to make has an equal number of complex connections and was made, let's be honest, perfect the first time. When I'm trying to reconstruct a prairie, I think about what it needs. What are the elements that I have control of and the ones that I don't? I think about how the prairie was connected in ages long past and how I can give it what it needs to survive in the landscape as it is now. One of the things that is so fascinating about prairies and really draws me to them is that they need disturbance to persist. A cycle of wildfires and grazing animals like deer, elk, and bison renew the prairie and create microhabitats that are nutrient rich or nutrient poor, which in turn encourages diversity because these conditions are necessary for certain species to thrive in these patchy, what I like to call, mini ecosystems. Prescribed burning nowadays is a tricky science and a perfect example of where the weather conditions, which are certainly out of our control, have to be just right in order for us to burn safely. It takes partnership and persistence, two things that prairies and those who work in the prairie landscape are definitely no stranger to. Listen as Pheasants Forever biologist Megan Howell tells her story about getting to participate in a prescribed burn this year.
7: So, the best thing that happened to me this year was being able to do a prescribed burn with the Native Prairie Bank. Um, I've done a few burns when I worked with the Iowa DNR, and I was really looking for more opportunities to get back into it and get more experience. Um, I got the opportunity to do that when I attended one of the Prairie Coteau Conservation Focus area meetings. Uh, Rhett Johnson of the Native Prairie Bank had mentioned that they were short-staffed for the burn season, and they may not be able to get as many burns done as they wanted to or needed to. Um, So I guess every year I set goals for myself personally and professionally, and this year my goals were to set out to volunteer more and also to get on a few burns because I had been missing it and I wanted to get more comfortable with it. So the opportunity was just right up my alley. Um, I hopped up or I hopped on the volunteer list with a, a few good friends and colleagues of mine, and seemed like it was, it seemed like as soon as we signed up, everything was working against us to get the burns done. Um, as everyone knows, the weather was not conducive to burning. Um, we got signed on for volunteering late, and we almost didn't have a class to get certified and to do the pack test. So um, that was a challenge. And then to make matters worse, a week or so before the pack test, which I had worked pretty hard getting into shape for, I was bringing a plate of venison out for my uh, Easter dinner on the fire, and my flip-flop rolled under my foot, and I fell down the stairs. And um, don't worry, I, I saved the meat, but I sacrificed my foot. And I thought it would be maybe like a day or two of pain, but it ended up being weeks and I had to take that pack test with an injured foot, but I luckily managed to pass. Um, So after all of that, the the stars aligned, and the weather was right for a fire. We went down to Jackson County to a native Prairie Bank easement, and I got to run the torch and work the line, and it was a beautiful day. We got the fire done. Everything went well. Um, But the best part about that day was that, everyone involved benefited from it. The, the Native Prairie Bank got to do a burn that they may not have been able to do which helped out the land obviously and the landowner. Um, I got to burn with a good friend of mine and colleagues and um, also got to fulfill my personal and professional goals of volunteering and gaining more experience with prescribed fire. Um, I guess the reason I wanted to share this story is because I think it's super important, one, to set goals for yourself, but two, don't just attend meetings. There's so much you can get out of them. Immerse yourself in them. Um, I guess I encourage people to contribute to the meetings, but also use the meetings to network. You never know what opportunities are out there to do more, and um, you just never know what can come out of it. So. That's probably the best thing that happened to me all field season. It was a really great day and a great opportunity, and I look forward to hopefully having more in the future.
0: That Megan Howell, she is so good. I love that she's always so excited whenever she's talking about stuff and opportunities and partnership. She's so right. It takes a village. Right, I really
2: enjoyed her uh, comments about volunteering. I thought that it was fabulous. I thought it was... Spot on perfect recommendation for people that might want to move forward in the DNR or their career or whatever they want to do. It's a perfect opportunity.
0: Yeah, you have to make things happen. They're not always, you know, stuff isn't always paid. I mean, we're in this because we love it. I just thought that everybody who had stories, they had such good stories. And it just, for me, it really brings forward everything that's going on under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. I just hope that this joy that everybody's sharing, I mean, I felt like every single story had this joy and exuberance and excitement about prairie and that makes me excited because, all right, we're going to get sappy Jess, are you ready? When I return <laughs> to the roots of the prairie as dust, it makes me feel good because someone long after me is going to have these opportunities to puzzle over how complex prairie is and, you know, bask in the wonder. I like it. That's pretty good.
2: I like the New Year's resolution aspect of of Megan's comments too. Just you know, think about what
0: you might want to accomplish over the next year. I think it's a great idea. And that ties it all together with this special bonus episode around the holiday time, because you know, there's no doubt that the work we do—it's incredibly rewarding and fascinating—to do this and work for the people of Minnesota and to work for our natural resources, right? the work we do is complex. It can be difficult. It can be challenging. (laughs) So before we close out this episode and wish everybody a happy new year and a transition into 2020, (laughs) I just want to make two dedications. So on the hard days, I don't know about you Jess, but I really look forward to coming home to my space, to our families and especially to our furry friends. Your furry friend is staring at me right now. It's very distracting. (laughs) (laughs) My furry friend is crashed out asleep on her bed because for the last 14 years and 10 months I've been greeted at the door by Coonhound, who now has increasingly gray whiskers. I don't know about you, but her happy dance has changed over the years. Now it's, you know, not so much a race around the yard. It's just a small hop light jog around the yard. But it doesn't really matter, because every time I come home and I see that long nose and that wagging tail, whatever kind of day I had, it just melts away. In your case, Jessica, (laughs) you are greeted by a much younger, more boisterous presence, one could say. I like to think of him as an elephant in golden retriever form who just about knocks you over with his his exuberant happy dance. He cannot believe you came home to him and that you're his person. So before we close out, we just want to say that this episode is dedicated to them, Savannah and Domino, and all the furry companions, no matter what form they take. And as a special dedication, Jess didn't know I was going to do this, but it's happening. This episode is also for my co-host, Jessica Peterson. I'm looking at you right now. Big eyeballs. It really is an honor to be your friend, to be your colleague, and to be a partner on this podcast. We met on the prairie, I don't even know how many years ago. And even though you were warned that I was absolutely bananas, we still just formed (laughs) this great friendship. And that has transitioned into our work where we get to work on these fun projects together. And I'm so glad that I got to go on this journey with you. Thanks for being willing to always try new things with me and to help spread our joy of the prairie. Next year's a new year. And as you transition into work responsibilities, I know your impact on the prairie and particularly on my life will continue. With the new year comes a new beginning.
2: Thanks, Megan. That was really sweet. We are good friends and we have a lot of fun on the prairie and we've had a lot of fun on the prairie podcast. But now it's time to bring in some fresh energy, some fun stuff from our favorite person, Mike Worland. We I love you, Mike. It's going to hey, be great.
1: You too.
2: <laughs> It's going to be awesome. So I'm handing you the baton, Mike. Mike's going to take over my role, Um, keep Megan in line as uh, season three continues next year.
3: No, I I can't do that. But I am so honored and so excited about being on this podcast.
0: I mean, I just have a couple quick caveats here. Is Mike really everybody's favorite person? I don't know. I have some questions about that.
4: Well... (laughs)
3: That is an erroneous statement. There's no doubt. Yeah. I mean,
0: I we, can, we can you get into it. You guys are great. Yeah, we can get into it in season three. But I, I'm i excited as well. Jess, I will miss you more than I could even begin to possibly say. But I also think it'll be fun to go on this journey with Mike. He's like a brother to me. And we hmm. have sort of a frenemy type relationship. It's good. It's kind of a brother-sister sort of thing. It yeah. is very much a brother-sister relationship. It's a little bit yeah. frightening sometimes. but
3: I enjoy pointing out. <laughs> When I think you're wrong. Um, (laughs) And and usually I'm wrong when I do that. yeah, that's accurate. It's fun anyway.
0: I'm glad that this is being recorded so that forever is, we can just, I will point to it now always. Uh, Remember that time when you said that I'm always right? Okay, let's just play bonus episode season two. (laughs) So thanks for being on this journey with us. We can't wait to roll out season three. Lots of things happening in the new year. Lots of changes. We hope things are going great for you. As always, you can find episode details and more information on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. You guys ready? Ready. We're going to wish you a safe and peaceful holiday season while you're watching the Prairie Grasses Lodge with Snow. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! (laughs) Yeah, <laughs>